<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, have you seen the the leaked transcripts of Donald Trump's uh, conversations with Pena Pena Yeta? How do you say his name? Pena Neta? You know, the president of Mexico. You know, you know who I'm talking about, even if I can't pronounce his name correctly. And my apologies to President Pena Nieto. There we go. Uh, this is from the transcript on the wall. This is Trump, right? This is the phone conversation that they had like, you know, a week after he became president or in the week that he became president. On the wall, you and I both have a political problem. My people stand up and say Mexico will pay for the wall. And your, prob- your people probably say something similar, but slightly different language. I have to have I have to have Mexico pay for the wall. I have to. I've been talking about it for a two year period. And NATO says, no way. <laughs> he says, my position has been and continue will be will continue to be very firm, saying that Mexico cannot pay for the wall. So then Trump says, but you cannot say that to the press. The press is going to go with that. And I cannot live with that. Oh, my God. This man is our president. It's in Incredible. I mean, just incredible. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how to say it beyond that. Uh, there's so much in the news today. There's so much for us to cover today. And, uh, you know, if you have thoughts or comments you want to share, feel free to give us a show. Brian Pruitt is going to drop by a little later on. It should be an interesting conversation. And uh, but I want to start out with uh, Missouri. Missouri is uh Arguably, I mean, you know, one the, the Missouri Compromise, I think you could draw a straight line from uh, John Quincy Adams going back into the House of Representatives to, well, actually, this even precedes that. I think you could draw a straight line from, you know, the institution of slavery through the Missouri Compromise to Dred Scott to the Civil War. And so, you know, Missouri was a, a very, very pivotal state. And, and uh, when the Missouri Compromise, you know, the, you know, it was basically they were going to let two states into the Union and, you know, we'll make one slave and one free, right? And that's uh, what a compromise. And when Jefferson learned about this, this was in 1820. He had been out of the White House since 1808. He died in 1828. He was an old man. He was in his 70s. He was arthritic. Um, he was... He, uh, he was actually preparing for his death. And when he learned about the Missouri Compromise, that they were going to let Missouri be a slave state, he freaked out because he had been he had spent. And I realize this defies a lot of you know conventional bumper sticker wisdom. But he had spent even though he was a slave owner, had spent much of his life fighting slavery. It was the first piece of legislation he introduced as a young man into the House of Burgesses in Virginia was to end slavery in Virginia. They punished him by passing a law that if any of his slaves escaped, they would be the wards of the state for, or if he freed any of his slaves, they would become wards of the state for two years and then uh, subject to to resale. So, uh, you know, he got slapped down quite a few times on this. But anyhow, this is he, he, he writes this letter 
to uh, Congressman John Holmes of Massachusetts. It's April 22nd, 1820, six years before his death. Um, and yeah, I thought he died in 1820. Apparently he died in 1826. He says, I thank you, dear sir, for the copy you have been so kind to send me of the letter to your constituents on the Missouri question. It is a perfect justification to them. I had for a long time ceased to read newspapers or to pay a general attention to public affairs, confident they were in good hands and content to be a passenger in our bark to the shore from which I am not distant. In other words, he's going to take the canoe across, across the river Styx. He's going to die. Right? A very kind of literary reference. But this momentous question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once as the death knell of the Union. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only. See, he's, he's saying, okay, so the, the Missouri Compromise, but they're continuing slavery. This is going to be a disaster for our country. So he continues, it is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coincided with a marked principle, and, th and this is the, 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 the line in Missouri, right? A geographical line coincided with a marked principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated. And every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. And, and then he went on to say, but as it is, we have a wolf by the ears and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other, which I think ultimately was the thinking of most of the slave owners back in those days. And, uh, you know, all the more the tragedy for America. But Missouri is back in the papers with a new draconian bill that so threatens people of color in the United States that the NAACP just issued their first ever national international warning about traveling to Missouri or living in Missouri. Uh, the, uh, this, this from uh, Think Progress today by uh, E.A. Crundon. People of color and other minorities have been warned not to visit the state of Missouri after Republican Governor Eric Greitens signed a draconian bill into law that directly threatens minorities. Uh, the organization also advised extreme caution to both travelers and minorities currently living in Missouri. Uh, this is SB 43, and basically what it, what it says is that as an employer, you can fire somebody for for bigoted reasons. You can fire somebody because they're gay. You can fire them because they're trans. You can fire them because they're black. You can fire them because they're Asian. You can fire what, Hispanic, whatever you want. See, this is, you know, make America white again, right? This is, this is the, whole, the whole conservative shtick, Trump shtick, the whole thing. And, and employees are blocked from suing the individuals responsible for any alleged bias. Only businesses themselves can be sued. It removes whistleblower protections for Missouri state employees. And Missouri NAACP president Nimrod Chapel Jr. has since called the measure a Jim Crow bill, an intentional nod to racial segregation. So this is uh, black students at the University of Missouri have been subject to racial slurs on numerous occasions. A June report indicated that black drivers in the state are 75% more likely to be pulled over than their white counterparts. Uh, Chapel says, this is the legalization, this is the NAACP president in Missouri, um, they're legalizing discrimination in the state of Missouri. Now, Texas is getting ready to pass similar legislation, uh, or actually, I guess has, because of the passage of SB4 in Texas, well, actually, it's not so similar. This is legislation that targets so-called sanctuary cities. Uh, they issued a travel advisory back on May 9th about that. So it's like, you know, it's back. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's troubling. It's troubling. The, the, uh, Steve Miller yesterday had a meltdown in a press conference with Jim Acosta and just, you know, went off on how the Statue of Liberty, the little plaque, you know, the uh, Colossus, the new Colossus poem, uh, was not actually part of the Statue of Liberty. We got the Statue of Liberty in the 1890s. The New Colossus poem was added a decade later, thereabouts, and uh, doesn't reflect Americans' values, um, essentially. 
Uh, as Victoria Jones notes in her newsletter this morning, it's a popular refrain among white nationalists. Stephen Miller's comments got an enthusiastic response from white nationalists on Twitter. David Duke, a vocal Trump supporter and former imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, devoted a chapter in one of his books to Emma Lazarus and the Statue of Liberty, saying she wanted to turn America into a refuge for the castoffs of the world. White supremacist Richard Spencer made a similar point in January on Twitter. Stormfront.org, a popular website among white supremacists, has numerous discussion threads on the subject. The subreddit for President Trump's supporters, which frequently pushes white nationalist themes, uh, memes, excuse me, also has a post titled, Does anyone realize the poem inscribed beneath the Statue of Liberty is not in fact law? Another of Miller's tangential arguments, uh, which didn't seem to make any sense to the people in the, in the press room. So uh, strange goings on uh, here. The, well, it's not even strange. I mean, this is just how, how far do they have to go with this dog whistle racist rhetoric before the people in America say, hey, enough, that's not us. I, I have a horrible feeling that they have a long way to go. You know, Trump is still floating in the high 30s in terms of approval, which is pretty damn shocking. And the, the ongoing process of basically the deconstruction of a progressive United States, you know, turning us into the Confederate States, raises the question, did the South win? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Because it's sure looking like it. It's like the Republican Party has become the party of the, the old Confederacy. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So, you know, we're, we're, in, we're involved in these long wars in the Middle East. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, oh, you know the, it, we're, I think this is the longest war that the United States has ever been in. Uh, this, the, these wars that George W. Bush lied us into in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I mean, he didn't lie us into the one in Afghanistan. We went in cheerfully uh, after a fair amount of media coaxing. But the fact of the matter is that the Afghan government, Mullah Omar, offered to arrest bin Laden and turn him over to a third country for a trial. And George Bush said, no, nah, I'd rather bomb your country. And so we're still there 15 years later because George Bush was an idiot who wanted to have a war. And well, he's not, he wasn't an idiot. I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't call people names. But he, he, uh, he was utterly without ethics or honesty and, and clearly didn't have a good grasp of foreign policy or what happens when you invade and occupy a country for 15 years. And Don Rumsfeld and, and Dick Cheney wanted to try out their libertarian experiment. They desperately needed a country. They tried this in Chile. It didn't work with Pinochet. Uh, they tried this in the United States. It didn't work with Reaganism. They tried, Sam Brownback tried it in Kansas. It didn't work. So they wanted to try it in Iraq. Take down the government altogether and let the wonderful magical marketplace come in and fill that void. So we talk about this long war. But, you know, when I opened the show, I was talking about how the NAACP has issued this travel ban in Missouri, or not a ban, a travel warning to people of color about going to Missouri. And it's, it's, uh, it's a long war. I mean, this is the war about slavery that is still going on in the United States. We are still trapped in a battle, a debate around slavery. Now, we don't call it slavery anymore. Now it's Jim Crow, but it's, it's, it's all about the racialization of white power. That's, that's probably a, a redundant phrase, but uh, it, I mean, this is, you know, it's the, it's the white supremacists and, 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 the, and the bigots continuing that war. I, you know, I was amazed this morning to discover that the Department of Justice was created in the 1880s under Ulysses S. Grant, ostensibly to move forward a reconstruction. But in fact, what it served to do was to stop Reconstruction and institute Jim Crow laws. And so now the Justice Department is being run by Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. You know, what, a, what a, an irony and, and how, how neatly do those things tie together. So, so we've got that. In the meantime, 
Mark Zuckerberg has hired Hillary Clinton's pollster. Yeah, you heard that right. And, uh, or at least the Clinton campaign's pollster, or a pollster who worked with or for the Clinton campaign. And which is causing, and he, you know, he just did this listening tour where he traveled to, I think, to every state in the union or a bunch of states and, and just kind of showed up and met with people and, you know, hey, I'm your friendly local billionaire, you know, and and a lot of people are like, oh, boy, wow, a billionaire. Oh, yeah. How cool is that? I'm going to talk about great wealth in a little bit, too. Uh, but uh, when he was first doing this a couple months back, there were a lot of people going, hmm, is he thinking about running for political office? And if so, what political office do you run for in every state? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, there's a billionaire in the White House right now. Oligarchs can become president in this new post-Reagan era. And I mean, you know, it used to be the oligarchs simply owned the president, as in Reagan and both Bushes. Now the oligarchs are actually thinking, well, now the oligarchs have actually become president. Is this really what we want? Is this the kind of country that we are, that, that we think that oligarchy is like the way to go? There's just a, a, uh, a remarkable piece in the Washington Post, it was a few days ago in the Washington Post, about great wealth and the impact that great wealth has on people. The title of it is, it's by uh, Charles Matthews and Evan Sandsmark, Being Rich Wrecks Your Soul. We used to know that. And he goes back, he starts out, you know, with, with Rome and, and Mr. Potter and A Wonderful Life and whatnot. And then he says, uh, over the past few years, a pile of studies from behavioral sciences all say more or less being rich is really bad for you. Wealth, it turns out, leads to, be, leads to behavioral and psychological maladies. And I'll, I'll continue this list when we come back from the break. But this is the, these are the dangers of great wealth. And I think that they're all on display in the Trump presidency. I don't know Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know that much about him. Never saw the movie. Uh, you know, but, and let the people decide and all that. But still, billionaires for president? Really? After George Bush and Dick Cheney sold us on the idea of multi-millionaire CEOs as president, remember the CEO presidency? Now we have a billionaire as presidency. You ready to have another? Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just a little breaking news here. This from uh, Vox.com. Two senior law enforcement officials have told me that the new revelations illustrate why they believe the potential case against Trump is stronger than outsiders have thought. A senior law enforcement official said... This is, this is a senior law enforcement official talking to senior people within the FBI. What you are going to have is the potential for a powerful obstruction case. You're going to have the former FBI director testify, and then the acting director, and then the chief of staff to the FBI director, the FBI's general counsel, and then others one right after another. This has never been the word of Trump against what James Comey has to say. This is more like the Federal Bureau of Investigation versus Donald Trump. So get over to the official Mike Pence website to see what, you know, what life is going to be like in America after Donald Trump is taken down. Uh, that official MikePence.com is the website, and it's pretty shocking. There's some fascinating stuff there, but uh, don't share it with your children. Uh, official MikePence.com. So anyhow, back to being rich. This is, this is really quite remarkable. This is the piece this, uh, by Charles Matthews and Evan Sandsmark in the Washington Post. It was published July 28th, last week. Being rich wrecks your soul. We used to know that, he, is the headline. He says, when it comes to a broad range of vice, and every single one of these uh, suggestions is backed up by actual research. And the links to the research are in the article. Every single one of them. When it comes to a broad range of vices, the rich outperform everybody else, they write. They are much more likely than the rest of humanity to shoplift and cheat. They're more likely to be adulterers. They're more likely to drink a great deal. They're even more likely to take candy that is meant for children. Mercedes and Lexuses are more likely to cut you off than Hondas and Fords. People who drive expensive cars more prone to run stop signs and cut off other motorists. The rich are the worst tax evaders, and as the Washington Post is detailed, they are hiding vast sums from public scrutiny and secret overseas bank accounts. They also give proportionally less to charity, not surprising, since they exhibit significantly less compassion and empathy towards suffering people. Is this starting to sound like the Trump family to you? Or 
you know, any other billionaire oligarchs that you may happen to know? This is, by the way, not all billionaires are bizarre like this. There are some people who can handle great wealth. But this is how, I mean, you know, love of money is the root of all evil. Wealth corrupts, right? This is almost absolute power, massive wealth. Studies also find that members of the upper class are worse than ordinary folks at reading people's emotions and far, less li- far more likely to be disengaged from the people with whom they're interacting. In other words, instead of, instead of actually listening to somebody, instead of actually carrying a conversation with them, they're checking their phone, they're, they're uh, you know, tapping their, their pencil on the pa- doodling. Some studies go even further, suggesting that rich people, especially stockbrokers and venture capitalists, who we once called robber barons, are more competitive, impulsive, and reckless than medically diagnosed psychopaths. And by the way, these vices do not make them better entrepreneurs. They just have mommy and daddy's bank accounts in in New York or the Cayman Islands to fall back on when they fail, which is certainly, I would say, true of Donald Trump. Simply being around great material wealth makes people less willing to share. This is a very, very wealthy people also have a hard time enjoying simple things, savoring the everyday experiences that make life so worthwhile. Because they have lower levels of empathy, they have fewer opportunities to practice acts of compassion, which studies suggest give people a great deal of pleasure. They believe that they deserve their wealth, thus dampening their capacity for gratitude, a quality that has been shown to significantly enhance our sense of well-being. And then they ask the question, how did we lose sight of this ancient wisdom about wealth, especially given all these studies from the psychological literature proving the corrosive, destructive influence of great wealth. And I, I think that, you know, and then the article kind of goes back to, it doesn't explicitly call out Reagan, but it points to that point in time, basically when, when we started down this path of celebrating wealth. And I remember the old TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And all of a sudden during the, during the 80s, during the Reagan era, we were celebrating riches. You recall, those of you old enough to remember, you, you, you recall... In 1976, Jimmy Carter walked from the Capitol building to the White House for his inauguration. He walked in front of everybody. Reagan went in his limousine. Carter had a people's had people's balls, very low expense, very open access, you know, to dance and celebrate his inauguration that night. Uh, Reagan said, no, we're going to charge big bucks. You know, only our major donors are going to come and you got to dress to the nines, uh, you know, black tie and all that kind of stuff. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the celebration of massive wealth in the United States. So do we want Mark Zuckerberg or any other generic billionaire to be our next president? I'm inclined to say no. I would rather have, you know, another Dwight Eisenhower. I'd, you know, Hell, I'd rather have Richard Nixon than Donald Trump. Uh, it's, uh, Richard Nixon at least understood how the world works. He understood politics. He had some understanding of economics. Yeah, he was corrupt, but he couldn't hold a candle to Donald Trump, in, in my opinion. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from War is a Racket by General Smedley Butler. General Butler in 1935, when he wrote this book, had just retired from the U.S. Marine Corps as the most decorated or one of the most decorated soldiers in American history. Uh, He was that generation's Dwight Eisenhower. In 1914, he helped capture Veracruz, Mexico. In 1917, he helped uh, capture Fort Revere and thus Haiti. Uh, He was... He was uh, he'd received the Distinguished Service Medal in 1919. So anyhow, here's the book. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it's about. It's a benefit conducted for the benefit. It it, it is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during that world war. 
That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other millionaires falsified their tax returns? No one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory if they're victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is that bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression and all its attendant miseries, back-breaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civilian life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out. Again, they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting for the nonce, one unique occasion, their dispute over the Polish corridor. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia can complicated methods. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in, but France was waiting, and so was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die, only those who foment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making. Hell's bells. Are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they're being trained for. He at least is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce in International Conciliation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, said, quote, And above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and the development of humanity, quite apart from political considerations of the moment, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. End of quote from Mussolini. Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army, his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war. Anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand at the site of Hungary and the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that. And the hurried mobilization of his troops to the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus showed it, too. There are others in Europe, who's, too, whose saber-rattling presages war sooner or later. Herr Hitler, with his rearming Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, as if is an equal, if not greater, method, method, menace to peace. France only recently increased the term of military service for its youth from a year to 18 months. Yes, overall, nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. In the Orient, the, move, the maneuvering is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked our old friends, the Russians, and backed Japan. Then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does this open-door policy to China mean to us? Our trade with China is about $90, billion, $90 million a year. For the Philippine Islands, we spent about $600 million in the Philippines in 35 years. And we, our bankers and industrialists and speculators, have private investments there of less than $200 million. Then to save that China trade of about $90 million or to protect those private investments of less than $200 million in the Philippines, we would be all stirred up to hate Japan and go to war, a war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally unbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes will be made. Millions and billions of dollars will be piled up by a few. War is a Racket by General Smedley Butler. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you uh, in the studio with me. I'm very, very pleased to have uh, Brian Pruitt, contributor to RedState.com. RedState.com is the website. Uh, you can tweet Brian at B-R-Y-A-N-P-R-U-I-T-T, Brian Pruitt. Thanks, Tom. Uh, or at RedState. Hey, Brian, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Great having you. Um, I wanted to talk with you about 
the uh, how conservatives understand Donald Trump. And in fact, actually, let's expand this a little bit. How conservatives uh, understand is the wrong word. The conservative perspective on the Trump presidency, shall we say. Engage. Versus, yeah. They engage. Yeah. Versus the basis understanding of the Trump presidency versus the institutional Republican Party's understanding of the Trump presidency. You're familiar with all three of these groups. Absolutely. So um, what's your sense of what's going on in the Republican Party in, a, in, in thoughtful conservative circles and then among, you know, the, the base? The easiest one to start out with is the establishment uh, conservatives. They are now, after he won the election, they are using Trump as a conduit to power and to get some things done, to maintain majorities, to move some pieces of legislation, just to sort of maintain their power base in Washington, D.C. I think that's the easiest one. And that's the wide swath of, of Republican Washington right now. Well, and, and they embrace the candidate that won, legitimately won, and now they're going to try and use the candidate or the, or the president to help advance some some sort of victories. You know, they've used, they've spent eight years promising the American people that they would repeal and replace Obamacare. Obviously, that went up in flames for multiple reasons that we can talk about <laughs> later or at a different time. But I believe the establishment of Republicans are using the president as a conduit. So as an example of that, Brian Zinke running around talking sure. about privatizing Western lands, selling them off to the, the Coke industries or whatever. And, I don't and, think that's what all Republicans want to do, but yes, that's what. Yeah, know, I mean the donor writer, class, right? Sure. This is this, and and Brian, not Brian Pruitt, Scott Pruitt, excuse me. <laughs> sure. Uh, respectfully, Definitely there's a lot of that on uh, the EPA yeah. on the deregulation side. You guys are not re related, by the way. Are you? No, we're not. Okay. So, not <laughs> at all related. <laughs> that's reassuring. He's from Oklahoma. I'm from Kansas. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh, cool. Wichita. So yeah, oh, that's that's uh, it's a great town. It is. So um, the conservatives so to, take conservatives. The, to take the second group. Conservatives, uh, and we say conservative first, Republican second, because that's the party by which conservatism sort of advances it ca its cause, and that's I'm a conservative. Um, is, conservatives are obviously upset. You know, obviously he wasn't our candidate in the primary. Everyone, everyone continues to admit that Donald Trump was a Democrat and at the very least is a big government Republican. Uh, you know, he said... And I presume he will keep this promise that he no one nothing will happen with anyone's Medicare. No one nothing will happen with Medicaid, which is bankrupting states left and right and the federal government because of all the subsidies, subsidies that the federal government has to give states to maintain this massive expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare. Conservatives are they don't know where to go. So they're going to try and change the conservative the, the Republican Party from the inside over the next four years. So what does that look like? That looks like more conservatives running for maintaining the conservative base in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, but also electing more conservatives in Republican primaries. So that means really making sure that the, that the primary process is competitive for conservatives. That's where organizations like the Senate Conservatives Fund comes in really funding can the club for growth candidates that are going to be conservatives, not conservative Republicans, not Trump Republicans. Right. Have you ever read conscience of a conservative? I have not. Unfortunately, it wasn't I, on the college uh, yeah. reading list. Let me recommend it. Actually, Barry Goldwater's book. I've read it twice. Um, I also read his second autobiography, uh, no apologies, I'm pretty sure, which is uh, a brilliant book also. Um, let's remember, let's if, remember that conservative Republicans believe in small government. This is where I'm going with this is I want to get to a definition of conservatives, because if you if you read Conscience of a Conservative, Goldwater made it quite clear that any party in his mind, any party that was basically a toady to wealth was not conservative, sure. that they were merely shills for wealth. And I think that the idea of putting in Scott Pruitt into the EPA or putting Ryan Zinke into the Interior Department with the explicit uh, goal of simply making life easier or more profitable for oligarchs in the United States and big businesses in the United States would have made Barry Goldwater vomit. I don't understand what people mean anymore when they say conservative. And I grew up in a conservative household. I, I had read John Stormer. By the time I was, you know, I, I went 
door to door for Barry Goldwater right. in, when I was 14 years old, sure. Brian. I, I understand this stuff. I can tell you exactly what it means. And it means a level playing field. It means no crony capitalism. It, it means that you don't go into Congress trying to elect people that are going to create regulations, more regulations to benefit big business versus small business. Things like creating a code in the federal government for procurement that only allows gigantic companies with hundreds of lawyers that know how to write these proposals for OPM. So basically small businesses that should be the engine of our government procurement process are blocked out because they don't fill out the right form or they don't get it in on deadline X. That's what conservatives are talking that's, about. That's, you know, that's not... Those are all. You're going to find liberals are absolutely agree with you on all those processes. But but liberals love deadlines. They love you have to cross every uh, cross every T dot every I. Where's that in the liberal theology? (laughs) I think it's the outgrowth of the regulatory state. Well, the, the, and, the, and the regulatory state, I, w- I would argue, in fact, in, in, uh, I wrote a book called Unequal Protection. There's a whole chapter in there about how the George H.W. Bush administration, Monsanto came to them and said, we've, we've developed, they, during the last two years of the Reagan administration, they developed the technology to genetic, genetically modify plants. And there, was, there were no regulations around. And they came to George Bush, the senior, and said, we need regulations for this. And the the implication was we need regulations so that we can lock this up. We want the equivalent of a patent or a trademark. And I'm Bush was like, sure, we'll do this. It. Sure. And, and, and I absolutely will concede the fact that during the late 80s and early 90s, Republicans who claimed to be conservative tried to rig the system. Well, in isn't their it, isn't it that, that that's not what the current conservative movement is? It, it just it seems to me like in the context of of. You know, on the, both on the left and the right. I mean, you know, the Democratic Party went through this dark night of the soul with the D- Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC. Sure. And, and you know, of, hey, let's become a party of corporate America. Only we'll choose the bankers instead right. of the oil companies. Right. And the Republicans said, OK, we'll take the oil companies. And you guys have the bankers. And that, I mean, that was the 90s, right? right. And and it's, so the, the net net of this is the big money has infected uh, to a certain extent both parties and and I think damaged both parties in a really big way. The last piece of of being a conservative just very quickly cuz I want to get to the third one the base mm. which is most Sorry. important. No, that's okay. I don't know how much time we have but I'll be more than happy to talk for as long as possible. Uh the the last little piece on knowing conservatives and how they interact with the the Trump presidency is that conservatives fundamentally believe and unfortunately we haven't done a good job in messaging this in that is that we want to be able to take care of the least of us. And that means creating a social safety net that really takes care, that is able to support the absolute least of us, the people that have that need help to survive. And why do you have six Republican-run states that are right now trying to pass legislation to drug test people on Medicaid? Well, that's got nothing to do with least or not least. It's just, a, uh, it's just humiliating people. People on Medicaid are far less likely than, than you know, middle class people like you that. and me to use the, the drugs. The, the analogy I'll use for that is you and I often disagree about voter ID. But the fact is, you know, you should be able to produce a piece of a, a, an ID that proves you are who you are to vote. If you're on public assistance, you, you, I think we're generally agreed that you probably if, you, if your goal is to get out of welfare and into the workforce and contributing to society, drug use probably is not a good thing to be doing. And so I think it's it, it, that's not, it's a that's not bit, the spirit in which this is being done, Brian. You know, that. I disagree. I disagree with you on that. I don't believe people have it in their so hearts. You to have people. So we're going to say to people, you are sick, you are poor, you need medical services. And in fact, you have a serious sickness, an addiction. And because of that serious sickness, we're going to cut you off from all health care. Well, I don't How is that conservative. How is that even human? I don't think something like an addiction that would be covered under the American with Disabilities Act, something like a heroin addiction or something or or, a, or any if sort of drug, a drug and, test. I mean, if, if I don't we, think, we've kind of wandered think, a field. I don't but, think that that okay. particular you, regulation would survive a court test under the. Okay. Aid. You wanted you wanted to get to the base. The final the final piece of of the of the um, the Trump coalition, if that's what you want to call it how he got elected is this base, the Trump base, which I think everyone in Washington, D.C. is trying to struggle to understand because no one in Washington, D.C. has taken time to understand both the Republicans 
and the Democrats. There were a lot of Democrats, Obama Democrats, in fact, that ended up voting for Trump because they feel completely betrayed by the Republicans, one, who didn't keep any of these promises that they made since 2010 when they took over Congress. And they feel betrayed by the Democrats but the, because the Democrats are worried about everybody but them. If you pay attention to the messaging coming out of the Democratic Party and, and the campaign committees and all the sort of superstructure that exists to support Democrats, none of it, zero, has anything to do with white, moderate to conservative working class and yet the uh, and that, by the way, is not just that, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. I get that's that in but upstate New York. That, that demo mostly went for Hillary Clinton. It was people earning over a hundred thousand dollars that were the main demo for for Donald Trump. That's not necessarily White true. People earning not, over not in not not in not in midwestern states. Not in midwestern states. That's the the data okay. come out of you. You said that um, that uh, the Republican Party, that the you know, conservative first, Republican second. And I think that that's a really important and consequential thing. I don't know of any Democrats who are willing to say, I'm a liberal first and a Democrat second. And maybe. And, and I believe that's why the Democratic Party, sure. in part, loses elections. If, if both parties don't do something, my, I'm starting to develop an opinion that if the Republicans don't do something to deliver for the country, that Trump may very well be on his way to creating a third party surrounding his cult of personality. On the Democratic side, I believe if you if the Democratic Party doesn't come together to address these issues for America, you're going to see a cataclysmic split. Like there will be two Democratic parties. I don't see a, a, I don't see the inertia. For, DLC party and the right. liberal party. I don't see the inertia for that, but just a party that, it, that rips itself apart. Yeah. Which would be a, a losing election. I think in both cases with either party. Ryan Pruitt, uh, hang on just a second. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Uh, you may not have ever heard of Dr. Herbert Needleman, but uh, a week or so ago, or a week and a half ago, July 18th, he died two weeks ago, I guess. Uh, he was 89 years old. He was working in North Philadelphia after medical school, uh, working as a, in a uh, community psychiatric clinic, a Benedict Carey wrote a great piece about this uh, in the New York Times. It's sort of a eulogy, but it's in the science section. Dr. Herbert Needleman, who saw lead's wider harm to children, dies at 89. And, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just read a little bit of this to you that, that Benedict Carey wrote. The, the boy approached, he, he, he was working in the psychiatric, community psychiatric clinic in North Philadelphia when he met a young man who had become a touchstone for a crusading career. The boy approached Dr. Needleman and explained his ambitions, which were large, even as the boy struggled with words. He was bright and open. Nonetheless, he had deficits that struck Dr. Needleman as similar to those found in children with lead poisoning. I thought, he said in a later interview, how many of these kids who are coming to the clinic are in fact missed cases of lead poisoning? Now, the problem they had at that point in time was there was no, uh, you know, good, no easy way to find out exposure to lead. But what they knew is that exposure to high doses of lead caused, uh, again, quoting from the article, mental lapses, even permanent brain damage and death. Uh, but what about the low-level exposure? No one knew. Right? Nobody knew what the, what the consequences of this were. And there was no easy way to find out how much lead a person had in their body because it ultimately you know, gets into the, into the body. You ingest it, you inhale it, you breathe it, you eat it, or whatever. And it, it gets into your bloodstream. And it, but eventually, where it ends up is in your skeleton. And doing a biopsy where you drill a hole through, you know, a kid's arm into their bone and pull out a piece of the bone to, to determine how much lead exposure they've got was, you know, inhumane and, and, and painful. So nobody had ever really done the epidemiology. So what Dr. Needleman figured out was that teeth are part of our skeleton. I mean, it is conventional wisdom. He didn't figure this out, but it occurred to him. Teeth are part of the uh, skeleton, and when kids, kids are five, six, seven, eight years old, they're losing their teeth. So he started playing tooth fairy, essentially, saying to parents in in these in this community in in uh, was it Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, uh, saying, you know, I'll, I'll I'll give you money for your children's teeth. You can you know you can play tooth fairy, give the money to your kids. 
And here's what he found. Children living in poor urban neighborhoods had lead levels five times higher on average than did the, their peers in the suburbs. He published a paper in 1979 in the, American, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which included more than 2,000 children. And they explained the associated consequences in devastating detail, writes writes uh, Benedict Carey in the New York Times. Children whose accumulated exposure to lead was highest in the group scored four points lower on an IQ test than youngsters who exposure, whose exposure was at the lowest end. Teachers rated the high exposure children as having a host of classroom issues, including attention deficits and behavior problems. And then they did a follow-up and there was a correlation between lead levels and reading delays and lead levels. And now we've seen you know, s- studies on lead levels and criminality and lead levels and violence. So when you expose children to lead, you are pretty predictably setting up a problem with misbehaving, uh, poor learning, and violent children. Flash over to an article by Michael Hawthorne on February 8th of last year in the Chicago Tribune. Now keep in mind, this was a year and a half ago. This was made public. The headline City fails to warn Chicagoans about lead risks in tap water. Uh, As Michael Hawthorne writes in the Chicago Tribune on February 8, 2016, more than two years after federal researchers, and keep in mind, this is a year and a half ago, more than two years after federal researchers found high levels of lead in homes where water mains had been replaced or new meters installed, city officials still do little to caution Chicagoans about potential health risks posed by work that Mayor Rahm Emanuel is speeding up across the city. By the way, this is not a knock on the mayor. This is not. In a peer-reviewed study, researchers at the U.S. EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, found alarming levels of the brain-damaging metal can flow out of household faucets for years after construction work disrupts service lines that connect buildings to the city's water system. Nearly 80% of the properties in Chicago are hooked up to service lines made of lead. And the city, when questioned about water quality, officials said the city complies with the lead and copper rule. This is a 1991 law. But the rule, this federal rule, only requires that 50 homes be tested every three years in Chicago, a city of 2.7 million people, with more lead service lines than any other U.S. city. Moreover, the rules require utilities to check only the first liter of water drawn in the morning. Now, here's why that's problematic. The lead is in the service lines. In other words, it's in the, in the water pipes out in the street, right? And in the lines coming up to the house. It's not in the house. So when you first open the, the tap in the morning and you take your first liter of water out, your first, you know, uh, fraction of a gallon of water out, you're getting the water that was sitting in the copper pipe in the house. You're not getting the water that was sitting in the lead pipe out in front of the house. To get that water, you've got to run your water for like, you know, a couple minutes, and let, give that water time to move from the street, from the lead pipes in the street, into the house and out the faucet. Because it has to displace all the water that's been sitting in the house overnight. So the, the, the methodology is screwy. Makes no sense. In fact, they, he notes in the article, the first liter of water is often lead-free. High levels of the toxic medical, metal can flow through taps for several minutes afterwards. After years of hearings, a group of EPA advisors issued a report in December that concluded the current rule masks widespread but little-known threats to public health. And they say, the, he says, he writes in the article, the only way to guarantee the public is protected is to make it a national priority to remove lead service lines altogether. This is according to the EPA panel. They, they wrote a letter to Gina McCarthy, who was the head of the EPA at the time, saying revisions to the rule alone are not sufficient to address this critical issue. The removal of all lead service lines will require significant financial resources and time. Uh, during this time, it's essential to have in place a robust effort of consumer education and engagement to ensure protection from exposure to lead in drinking water. And uh, the EPA says any household with lead service lines should flood flush pipes for three to five minutes anytime water hasn't been used for several hours. And then they point out toward the end of the article, a 2015 Tribune investigation reveals it remains a pernicious problem, it being lead contamination of water, in the same poor, predominantly African-American neighborhoods in the west and south sides that have given Chicago a national reputation for violence and academic failure. So Dr. Herbert Needleman passes away. He's the guy who 
woke us up to all this stuff. And, you know, what are we doing about this? Not nearly enough, in my humble opinion. Not nearly enough. Welcome back. You know, we talk a lot about the power of money in politics and how badly money corrupts politicians and has corrupted our political system. It goes way beyond that. Money is destroying our environment. The, uh, there's a brilliant piece. NPR put this thing together. Uh, August 3rd. Was that today? Yesterday? Yes, yeah, today. Yeah. August 3rd. Uh, the title is The Gulf of Mexico's Dead Zone is the Biggest Ever Seen. And, you know, basically, it's the, the, there, there is now a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. It appears every summer. That is 8,776 square miles. That's the size of New Jersey. And it's a dead zone. That is to mean no, there's nothing living in it. No, no uh, animal life anyway. There, there are, is uh, plant life. And that's, in fact, the problem. It's a dead zone because lots and lots of fertilizer are used in the upper Midwest on crops principally grown to feed cattle. Right, uh, a mind-boggling amount of our productive farmland is used to to grow soybeans and 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 corn and, and that are that are then fed to cattle, uh, which are then fed to us. And so much factory farm technology is being used that all this artificial fertilizer is being put on these crops, and then it washes away. And in fact, in this this article that NPR published, they they noted that uh, the the unusually heavy rains. So the, the record-breaking dead zone this year is the result of unusually heavy rains in the Midwest, which flushed a lot of nutrients into the Gulf. So the fertilizer gets flushed into the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River carries it down to the Gulf of Mexico. We're talking millions of pounds, maybe millions of tons of this stuff. I'm not, I've never seen a specific quantification of it, but it's huge. And that fertilizer then, just like it fertilized plants up in, in uh, Indiana, is now, or wherever, is now fertilizing the algae in the Gulf of Mexico. So you add fertilizer to warm water, and, and the algae just grows like crazy, and in the process, it sucks up all the oxygen, converts that oxygen to carbohydrates, you know, uh, bonds it with carbon and water, or carbon and, and hydrogen, and... Uh, you know, which makes plant matter, and then the plant matter eventually dies and settles to the bottom of the ocean. But in the process, it sucks all the oxygen out. The uh, bottom oxygen milligrams per liter, you know, typically it should be around, it should be well above five milligrams per liter of oxygen. Of, of oxygen, it's less than two, so it's not enough oxygen for a fish to survive. They would suffocate, and they do suffocate. Eight thousand seven hundred square foot dead zone. And, you know, we had, we had this in the, the Chesapeake Bay near here and near, you know, off, off, off the coast here on the East Coast. And we invested a, over a billion dollars in trying to fix this problem because it was also taking out fisheries and really important fisheries, which it is also doing down in the Gulf. And it's not solved, but it's like on its way in the Chesapeake. But down in the Gulf of Mexico, no. Nah. You know, the, the responsibility is too broadly distributed across America. There's too many states that are contributing to this problem, and, and, and the problem is, is uh, just making things worse. Meanwhile, as I, as I pointed out, much of that fertilizer is being used to grow crops that are going to be fed to beef. Loma Linda University, uh, which has one of the best medical schools in the United States, it's a, a Seventh-day Adventist organization. The Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians, and so they, they tend to look at diet and nutrition frequently. And this from theatlantic.com, the headline, if everyone ate beans instead of beef, and then the subhead, with one dietary change, the U.S. could almost meet greenhouse gas emission goals. This was done by uh, Helen Harwat and a team of scientists at Oregon State University Bard College and Loma Linda University. And they calculated, uh, reading from this article, calculated just what would happen if every American made one dietary change, substituting beans for beef. Now, this is not talking about becoming a vegetarian. 
This is the assumption is people are still going to eat chicken and pork and turkey and fish. Only thing that and and for that matter, dairy, you know, cheese, eggs, uh, milk. The only thing being taken out of the diet is beef. They found that if everyone were willing to do that, the U.S. could come close to meeting its 2020 greenhouse gas emission goals pledged by Barack Obama, President Obama in 2009. Even if nothing about our energy infrastructure or transportation system changed, and it is changing, you know, we're, we are electrifying rapidly. But even if nothing happened, this one dietary change could achieve somewhere between 46 and 74 percent of the reductions needed to, to reach that target. So think about it, right? Less beef. Meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump, this from Victoria Jones's newsletter today, she, she I think, referenced this uh, very quickly in her report on our program a few minutes ago. But uh, on July 19th, Donald Trump had a meeting with his national security team I'll give you the, the punchline at the end and then, and then fill, in the, fill in the blanks here. Trump left the national security meeting without making a decision on strategy. We're speaking specifically of Afghanistan here. His advisors were stunned, administration officials and others briefed on the meeting said. Two Pentagon officials close to General Mattis said he returned from the White House that morning visibly upset. A defense official confirmed the decisions, discussions are underway at the Pentagon regarding the future of uh, of Colonel John Nicholson, who's the guy running the Afghanistan uh, occupation or war or whatever you want to call it. So what did Trump do and say that so rattled his entire national security team that they couldn't even come to a decision? Well, Trump started out by saying he had met with some Afghan veterans, Afghanistan veterans, veterans of the Afghanistan war. And he, in fact, he kept coming back to this, even though he was sitting in a room full of generals and the generals are saying, here's what's going on. And he's saying, I don't want to listen to you guys. I talked to some veterans, right? They came to the White House. I pinned, you know, uh, awards on them or, you know, whatever. And, and I talked to them and they, you know, they told me we're losing. He says, we aren't winning. We are losing. Those are quotes from his tirade. He's never met John Nicholson, the guy who's running the war in Afghanistan. And in fact, back in February, Nicholson was the first to say that this war is a stalemate. And if we are going to, quote, win it, we need more troops. Now, I disagree with that. I don't think you can win an occupation. All you can do with an occupation is install a dictator and suppress the people. We did that with the Shah of Iran. Didn't work out so well. But that's that's basically it. I mean, you know, so so I, you know, the. The policy is, is, in my opinion, wrong, but this is, this is where it gets really strange. In the meeting, Trump repeatedly suggested Mattis and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Joseph Dunford replace Nicholson since he's not winning. Nicholson is the guy running Afghanistan. During the meeting, Trump also compared the war to a New York restaurant's 1980 renovation. Remember Club 21? Club 21 was like this really hot. It was the place to go to be seen and see and be seen. Uh, Rolling Stone about three, three weeks ago did a, a long story about Club 21. Um, fascinating stuff. And the story that Trump told to everybody in the cabinet room or everybody in this national security room uh, meeting was that Club 21 was losing money because they hired a really expensive consultant who told them that they needed to expand their kitchen. And Trump said, you know, the cooks could have told him that. They didn't need to hire a consultant. But Club 21 shut down uh, to, to, to put in a bigger kitchen because of these consultants. And, uh, and he said that they were out of business for a year. Well, it turns out they were closed for two months in 1987 to undergo a full renovation. It had nothing to do with fancy consultants. It had nothing to do with a bigger kitchen. It was, you know, you upgrade the facility. So the, the national security team is sitting here going, oh, wait a minute, uh, this, we're talking Afghanistan. Why are you talking about a, a hipster restaurant in New York City? It's not a hipster, it wasn't even the word. You know, it's a, a yuppie, uh, whatever, in the, in the 1980s. 
In the meeting, Victoria reports, Trump also complained that the U.S. isn't making money off Afghanistan's estimated $1 trillion in mineral wealth, while China is. And yes, in fact, during the Bush administration, they negotiated with China to let China come into Afghanistan and start mining raw materials. China is mining copper as we speak in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is insanely mineral rich, trillion dollars worth of minerals there. And so Trump is berating his national security staff about why aren't we stealing their stuff? Why are we letting China do it? And he left the meeting in, in basically in shock. And these guys are like, holy cow, is this, <laughs> this guy is president of the United States? Nate shared with me uh, Andy Borowitz's most recent piece. House, White House accuses French woman of spreading pro-immigration propaganda. This is in the New Yorker. The White House said on Wednesday accused an elderly French woman of spreading pro-immigration propaganda that undermined everything this country stands for. Is he talking about? Statue of Liberty. It's, it's great. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, American Carnage. You will recall when Donald Trump gave his inaugural address, uh, apparently written by Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon, uh, he talked about American Carnage. He promised to end American Carnage. Well, as Christopher Ingraham is pointing out in today's Wonk blog over in the Washington Post, gun deaths are up 12% since Trump became president. This is huge. Gun deaths are up over 12% year over year. Firearm injuries are up nearly 8%. The number of children under the age of 12 shot by a gun has increased by 16%, while instances of defensive gun use are up by nearly 30%. Uh, the first 200 days of 2017, the carnage has only gotten worse. In the first 200 days of 2014, for example, we had 6,206 gun deaths in the United States. In the first 200 days of Trump's administration, we've had 8,539 gun deaths, 6,000 versus more than 8,000. Since 2014, total firearms injuries are up 50 percent. Since 2014, shootings of children are up by nearly 30 percent. Now, why would that be? I'm guessing that there are two major variables that are driving this. The first is that during the Obama presidency, the NRA and the Republican Party and others were promoting this lie that Barack Obama and the Democrats wanted to take a gun away and, you know, outlaw handguns and, and quack, 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 right? The, the, that this was the whole Obama thing. You know, that black guy in the White House, he doesn't want you white guys to have guns. That was the message. I remember, you know, I in fact, I told this story on the air in 2008, or I guess it was early 2009. It was just as, as Obama, as President Obama was taking, you know, had become president. And in fact, it was the Christmas of 2008 because I was in Michigan with my family and uh, my brother Steve and I and one of our nephews and I think one of my other brothers, I think it might have been my brother John, we went uh, out to a, a gun range, you know, which is one of the things that we do when we get together is we, you know, competitive shooting, uh, strange but true. And, you know, brothers find ways to bond. And, and, uh, the guy who, and I, I wanted to buy a box of ammunition and, or actually I wanted to buy several boxes of ammunition. I was going to buy it for everybody there. And the guy said, I'll sell you two boxes. That's it. And each person can, uh, he actually wouldn't even let each person buy two boxes because the kids who were with us, he wouldn't let them buy any. And his shelves were half empty. I mean, there was very little ammunition in the store. This is a big gun range. And I'm like, why? And he said, because that N word and only he didn't, you know, he said it. This is the entire place was white. Uh, he starts going off about how Obama, that, that N-word in the White House, is going to take away our guns and people are stocking up. And, and, I mean, he was dead serious. And I'm like, you really think so? And he said, let me show you. And he pulls out his phone and he shows me uh, an email that, <laughs> I'm not making this up, shows me this email about how, how, you know, the, the, the details of Obama's plan, how Obama is going to take away people's guns and the people who won't surrender their guns, he's going to imprison them in FEMA camps. And this guy really believed this. And the, and the other guys around him were all nodding their heads like bobbleheads going, oh, yeah, yep, yep, yep. yep. You know, there's a couple people in there. Was one guy in there to buy a rifle. There was another guy in there who was, who was renting a gun to shoot in the same range we were in. 
I'm, you know, I'm about to walk into a shooting range with a 40 caliber handgun, but the guy, you know, the other guy who's nodding his head to the guy who runs the place, he's about to do the same thing. So I'm, you know, I'm not interested in getting in a gunfight. So I'm not arguing with this guy. I just said, you know, I don't think that's the case. And he's like, oh yeah, look at this email. So gun sales went nuts for eight years, just absolutely nuts. And now there's all these guns and, and ammunition all over the United States. And what's happening? Gun deaths are up. Suicides are up. Accidental, you know, accidental deaths are up. Children's shootings up 30% in two years. You know, now that there's no longer, you know, this, oh, the, you know, the, 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 the black guy in the White House, it's now it's Donald Trump. It's, oh, well, hey, let's just shoot You're somebody. listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. And in fact, as Troy points out, gun sales are down right now. It's absolutely true uh, because the hysteria is gone. But the guns are still here. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget... Democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.